Many of us are walking through together uh, this uh, concept of love actually doing things. If you've been here for the last couple of weeks or if you're in a life group, uh, we're walking through this. This guy in the video is a guy named Bob Goff who uh, kind of decided one day that um, following Jesus and loving Jesus and loving people actually means uh, doing things and going out and being a participant in what God is doing. And so he started trying stuff. And uh, if you're reading the book at all, it's just wild, the experiences that they've got to have, uh, been able to have, and uh, to been able to just uh, be a part of. Uh, so we're going to uh, open our Bibles together. If you have an app or whatever, it's Luke 19. It takes forever to open in here, or uh, if you're going to find that. But we're going to talk for a bit before we get to uh, what it actually says in Luke 19. Um, Luke chapter, Luke is, uh, he was actually a doctor who wrote a story of Jesus's life, which we call the Gospel of Luke in the Bible. And at this particular point in Jesus's life, he's on the way to Jerusalem. And we know, they didn't know at the time, but we know in hindsight, because we know the end of the story, um, the, or the supposed end of the story, I guess, that um, Jesus is going down to Jerusalem uh, for his eventual death and resurrection. But as he goes down, the way the roads work, uh, the north and south roads uh, in the interior of the nation of Israel, uh, you'd go down and then go through this city called Jericho. And Jericho was a uh, fantastic city. Uh, the, the, the like people who had money had invested there and made it like a, a rich kind of town, a Beverly Hills kind of hangout. Uh, the Herod, who was kind of the puppet king, of, of the nation of the Roman Empire uh, he kind of it was famous for the, like the pools he built like huge pools and this is pre like modern pump plumbing and stuff and he had these giant stadiums and palaces and castles and all that kind of stuff that it was kind of a big deal and so Jesus was walking down and he had to go through this through this town and so you know who had money in this culture uh, the, the Israelite nation was overrun or occupied or, or, or oppressed, really, by the Roman Empire, which basically ruled the known world at the time that Jesus was on earth. And the way that the Romans operated in order to keep the peace and make sure everything was all right is they kind of allowed cultures to hold on to their own systems. Like you can hold on to your own government a little bit and your own religion a little bit, except they always had problems with the Jews because the Jews had a god who said he was God and all the other gods aren't. And the majority of religions, as in all the other ones, would say we have a lot of different gods. There's a God that's over there, the God that's over there, and most importantly, Caesar is God. And they would say Caesar is Lord on their money. It would say where our money says in God we trust, their money would say Caesar is Lord. And they would just uh, see him as like a, a god uh, here on earth that uh, was given to rule us because politics and religion was not separate for them. So they, <clears throat> excuse me, they always had these problems with the Jewish people who said, no, there is no God but Yahweh, and uh, Caesar is not our God. Yahweh is our God. And so when they came in, they needed to find people who liked money more than their ethics, were willing to stab someone in the back so that proverbially or let's say drown their son in one of the pools that they built that was Herod um, so that they would just be like they loved power and money more than they loved their God and their Jewish faith and their traditions and so when they found someone like Herod who was kind of this ruling family they turned him into this puppet king and they would funnel money to him 
and he would oppress the people for them. And so the Jewish people would fight against each other, and that would distract them from fighting against the Romans. And then they would have these, uh, like the Romans would have to fund their massive empire, and so they would tax non-Romans uh, to a huge percentage. As, like everybody paid taxes, but the non-Romans or the Jews would pay huge taxes. And it's a long time period, but there's some areas or uh, history that actually talks about them paying like 80 or 90% tax. If you can think that through, that means the vast majority of the population is living in poverty. If you paid 80 or 90% tax and your roads were not paved and you did not have health care, right? Like it was, it was, you didn't get anything for this except you didn't get crucified, right? Like here's what you get for your taxes. We're not going to kill you. You're welcome, right? Oh, thank you, you know, but um, this was, they didn't hold elections <laughs> and the non-Romans didn't vote even if they did, but um, so there's just kind of like, it wasn't like, hey, do you want to pay taxes? It was like you're paying taxes. And so the way that they would get the taxes, though, because if the Romans came and took the taxes, that's oppressive, they would convince some Jewish people who liked money and power more than they liked their neighbors to become tax collectors. And the way that the tax collectors got paid is that the Romans said, we want, say, 50 or 60 or 70 percent of everything that everybody makes. You can collect whatever you want, and you keep the rest. And so the tax collector in a particular town, maybe like Jericho, would say there's a 75% tax rate, and he would keep the 5%, and that was kind of like his commission. It'd be like if working for the IRS was like commission-based, you know, except this is like IRS, and like, um, if you, like, when people think about these Jewish tax collectors who would go over and work for the oppressive occupying army, we're talking about like Americans who sneak out and join terrorist organizations, that's how they would feel about these people, all right? Like the, the amount of anger and hate and distrust put onto tax collectors was immense. They weren't just like field agents for the IRS. Uh, they were like field agents for the terrorist organization that's oppressing your family and taking your land and keeping you from being the nation that God has called you to be. And so there's these tax collectors. And in the city of Jericho, there's a chief tax collector, and uh, he, if you can imagine, there were all these tax collectors, and then there's a chief tax collector, and he would take a percentage of the tax collector's percentage, kind of like a, a pimp organization, where they would uh, have all these people that work for them, and they would get, like, th this is how evil this kind of thing was seen, too. Like, I don't, he, I don't think he wore a furry hat or whatever, but he, uh, <laughs> this is how they operated. And in the story this week, Jesus encounters this guy and talks to them. And I need you to know, if you did like a lot of Sunday school when you were little, and you, this guy's name is Zacchaeus. And you learn this song, Zacchaeus is a wee little man. And I need you to know this, that Zacchaeus in the story ends up following Jesus and going to heaven. And when you get to heaven, you're going to have to like make amends with Zacchaeus because you defined him by his size, all right? which is uh, prejudice, and if you learned that in Sunday school, I apologize for the sins of your Sunday school teachers uh, for teaching you that short people are less. And, and I'm not a short person, and I feel for short people can't reach things. But <laughs> I, th I think average height people uh, dominate for too long, and us, the short people and the tall people should band together and because uh, we're always banging our heads into things and you can't reach anything and if we got together 
We'd take out the averages, right? So that's an aside that won't be in the notes. But I want to read this story with you, but the guy's name is Zacchaeus. And so you know, it's kind of, uh, there's a couple of plays on words here. Zacchaeus in their language, like when they named, we talked about this last week, when you name someone, your name meant something. And Zacchaeus means like uh, innocent or blameless in their language. He would, that would be what his parents named him, which now he is guilty and a traitor and part of the oppressive army. He's oppressing his own family for the occupying army. But I'm going to read and uh, we'll follow along and then I want to talk about kind of what you see happening here. So, and the he is, is Jesus. He, Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through. And there, a man named, and there was a man named Zacchaeus, and he was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small of stature. And so he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to that place, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried, and he came down, and he received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled, this being the religious in the crowd. And this is what they grumbled. He has gone in to be a guest, to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods... I give to the poor, and, the ha- and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house, since he is also is a son of Abraham, for the son of man, which is Jesus' name for himself, came to seek and save the lost. There's a, a wild story that Jesus pulls here that we've turned into a children's song and it loses all of its power because it becomes Jesus loves short people, which children like that message. But there's more than that happening here. When we meet Zacchaeus, he's introduced as he was a tax collector and was rich, which is to say he had no ethics, he was a trader, he took money from people who shouldn't have been giving him money, and he was very good at it. And he was powerful, and people couldn't get near him, and he was strong. He had the kind of house where Jesus, who was traveling with his 12 disciples, could go up to him and say, hey, the 13 of us are coming over. And he had the kind of resources to say, all right, come over. Because he would have had that level of wealth, that size of a home, that number of servants or slaves in their culture that would have been able to take care of that, and it wouldn't have been an issue at all. And when we meet Zacchaeus, he's described as powerful, crooked, and, being, and good at being powerful and crooked, so he's rich. And then we see that he couldn't see Jesus, and he needed to. Which indicates, even though he had all this stuff, he had some kind of emptiness inside of him. Like there was something about that over there that wasn't over here. And Zacchaeus is described as running, which, so you know, if, in the original Jewish context, when they read this, people would start giggling because men didn't run, all right? Like, 
They, they don't. You drove to church today probably and saw people jogging, right? And you're like, that's neat. They're jogging to church. But they're, that's what my kids thought for years. That's so fun that people jog to church. We should jog to church. And um, maybe they go on Saturday night. But, they, <laughs> but uh, in their culture, that would have been like, like the, it's just stupid and shameful. Nobody jogs, right? Which many of us are like, amen, back to biblical values, right? But, <laughs> but there, is, <laughs> there is this like, he, he shames himself to run and then he climbs a tree to be able to see. If you can imagine like, think like rich and powerful and crooked person uh, running and climbing a tree so we can see what's going, the, the crowd around him would have been gossiping already. Like, did you, isn't that that guy? Like, it looks like that guy? Like, a, that guy who, like, oppresses our family and steals from us so that he can be wealthy and live up on the hill and have all that money? But, but if I knew that guy, he wouldn't have just run behind my family so he can see this parade and then climbed a tree. Like, that doesn't make any sense. And then Jesus walks along, and Jesus sees Zacchaeus. And somehow, and we don't know the backstory, but somehow Jesus knows who he is, which makes me think he's that crooked and that bad and that famous for all the wrong reasons and that rich. And Jesus actually goes up and talks to him. So we've got this Jesus who's powerful in this strange way because he's got this crowd of people in the countryside. He walks through a town and everybody shows up just to see like, who is this guy that's doing these healings and feeding people and teaching these things, teaching like he has authority and saying that he's the son of God? And then we've got this guy who has all the power in town and they meet. And Jesus says, I'm coming over. Now, when Jesus comes to town, there's a list of people who he should stay with, right? Like if Jesus came to our town, right, we would expect with who's the biggest church in town. That's where Jesus should meet with that guy, right? And then, and then underneath that, it would be like the next biggest. Maybe there's maybe a mayor or a, a, maybe we have a Christian member of whatever Congress is, you know, like there are some people. Jesus should not be meeting with the powerful guy who joined ISIS, <laughs> right? This is not what Jesus should be doing. Like, and I don't mean to tell Jesus what to do, right? But if you want to start a movement that's going to be popular and have people follow you, you don't go and hang out with the people that everyone hates, right? Like if you see all the election commercials on TV, none of them, like we have one, like there's the one where the, the ex-sheriff is speaking on behalf of someone. No one has got the ex-ISIS member to speak on their behalf, you know? Like, we love this candidate. That would actually be, like, negative, wouldn't it? Or if we find the person that everyone hates and we put them up there and, like, you don't want to associate with them. And Jesus goes in the opposite direction to what everyone there thought he should do, which makes it fantastic because it says the whole crowd starts gossiping. This is verse 7. They saw it and they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And, and what they mean by, like, we all would say we're sinners, but for them in their culture, this is a person who sins and keeps sinning and sins intentionally and doesn't care about it because he has enough money that he doesn't have to care what you think about him. 
And Jesus has gone in to hang out with this guy. And if you go into someone's house and eat with them, you need to know in their culture, eating together was like a commitment. They, you can Google this stuff. It's like called a covenant of salt and things. Like if you would sit down and break bread and, and, and ingest salt for some reason with someone else, and they're in uh, the Arabic, Arabic languages, uh, the word for salt and the word for like contract or agreement is basically the same word. And when they sit down and have this meal, Jesus is saying, I am with you. And Zacchaeus would be saying, I am with you. Jesus walks into a town, a rich town, full of powerful people, full of good people, and sits down and forms a bond with the worst one. Like sitting down and sharing salt would mean Jesus is saying, like if you would break this contract or this covenant of salt, it's punishable by death. And so Jesus is saying, for the rest of my life, me and you, we're connected. And so it's no wonder that everyone's grumbling. And if you put yourself in the story, you need to know that you and I would be the grumblers. Like immediately, because we're so good at seeing the obvious sins. And then we back up and gossip about it. And that gossip helps us be more judgmental, right? Because, oh, sorry. We, we don't got, we share prayer requests about it because that helps us minister to them. <laughs> right? And I, I, don't, like, I don't normally talk about this, but I just really want you to be able to care and minister for the Jesus. He's just making some bad choices. And so you know, you can read the Bible. This is a theme in Jesus' life, people trying to stop him from making bad choices. His mom does it. His brothers and sisters does it. The disciples do it. They pull Jesus aside and give him a what for. They pull the Son of God aside and say, so you know, um, this is not the way that this is going to happen. We had a vote, and uh, we really, like, it's fantastic. It's fantastic because we do this all the time, but we won't say it. You know, like Jesus will move really strongly in someone's life or just uh, save someone from darkness or the, and it's a person we don't actually like. You know, like we love everyone and we want everyone to come to know Jesus, but you know, my friend at work who's just a pain who I don't mean to gossip about, but I just hate them. And then some idiot tells them about Jesus and they get saved. Oh, right? And, and you haven't let them know you're a Christian because then you have to like, like them. Oh, right? That's what Jesus pulls. He kind of screws everything up for the religious people. And I don't know if that's like a theme, like that should be your bumper sticker because I was really good at following Jesus until I actually got to know Jesus. Like, I had an awesome life, and I had a good career path going. And then I actually decided, and I mean in ministry, like as a leader of churches. <laughs> and then I did, like, Jesus changed the direction of my life to where we were going to actually follow him and kind of put everything on the line for him and, and just go by what he says instead of what apparently is right. You know, I've got multiple degrees. Jesus never went to college. But, uh, you know, it's like... And I'm going to throw that out there in my prayers frequently, but uh, he also was never married, so he doesn't really get that. But the, uh, these are the conversations Jesus and I have, and he always wins, and he is always right. And not right away, but eventually, but it, 
always happens. So Jesus walks in, and the religious people in this story, so you know, the religious people are the ones who are having a terrible time. Zacchaeus is having the time of his life. It says he responded joyfully. And if you read into what Zacchaeus said, and then he calls Jesus Lord, and it actually is kind of a salvation picture as much as salvation history works. And then Zacchaeus starts, he says, half of what I own, I'm giving away. This isn't like, hey, this week I'm going to give half of my paycheck to the church. This is half of what I own, I'm giving away. This is the kind of wealth this dude has. Half of what I own, out the door today. Talk about Jesus like changing the understanding or the value of a guy's view on the world. Half of what I own. Like my house, I'm selling it. We're downsizing. I'm getting rid of these material possessions and I'm giving them away because I put so much value in them. Then he starts saying, if I have cheated anyone, I'm going to pay them back four times what I cheated them out of. In the Old Testament, there's like hundreds, four or six hundred, depending on if you count the positive or negative ones, laws that the Jewish people would live by. And there were laws for if you defrauded someone. If you sold someone that car and you didn't tell them that it sucked because you wanted to cheat them out of the money that they had earned, and then they found out. If you voluntarily admitted to committing fraud on someone, you had to pay them back and then pay back an extra 20%. That was your punishment. If you got caught in your fraud, you would pay them back and then pay them back a, another portion, like a double portion, so like two, twice as much. If you got caught and you had taken away from people essential resources, like you just didn't take their extra jacket, you took the only, you took their extra jacket and the only jacket they had, or you didn't, or you like took their home or took their family's land. If you defrauded someone of their basic essential needs, you had to pay back four times as much. And so Zacchaeus voluntarily can commit to the law and only pay back what he owes and 20%. He voluntarily enters into the highest level of restitution that existed in their people, in their culture. Because a lot of times we like to, we meet Jesus or we follow Jesus or we're convicted of our sin and we repent and, then, and that's as far as it goes. And Zacchaeus actually demonstrates, and this isn't like works-based faith, he isn't faith, he isn't saved because he gave away a lot of stuff. He demonstrates the level of his faithfulness, which previously was in his wealth and power and now is in Jesus by physically giving away of the thing that he previously put all of his faith and trust in. The thing that he had his identity in. So now who's happy in the story, right? Zacchaeus is really happy because he comes over. Now all of a sudden, all the poor people are really, really happy. The richest guy in town who's been oppressing us, and I wasn't smart enough to understand the tax code, or I didn't, wasn't able to understand what was happening, he took away my home, he took away my land, he ruined our family, is now paying us back four times as much. Like, this is a pronouncement of joy, that like the joy goes from Jesus to Zacchaeus, 
to all the poor people in town, and the religious people are like standing back going, <laughs> isn't it fantastic? <laughs> like the contrast that you see there? This is why we don't sing a song about the guy being short, all right? Because what he is is a demonstration of Jesus doing things that are basically impossible. Because if you read the Gospel of Luke, or if you were here a month ago, we did this in the Gospel of Matthew, we read about Jesus saying, it's about as easy for a rich person to get saved as it is to put an, a camel through the eye of a needle. And then Jesus says that, and then like two weeks later walks through town and gets a rich guy saved. Boom! This is why like li liberation theology, if you're into theology, it falls apart a bit because Jesus apparently loves rich people. Like, and we love hating rich people. Like, we love it. And we know that the rich people are richer than us, right? Like, we don't hate ourselves. We, you know, oh, there's some, oh, if I had that much money, I would do, man, you know, whatever. I'd be three times as bad. <laughs> I promise. That's why God isn't giving me that money. That would be bad for everyone, all right? Mostly me. Um, but when we, when, <laughs> it's true. This is my argument against a raise if you're on the leadership council. All right, so, <laughs> so I shouldn't have said that out loud. But there is this, there is this kind of, uh, there is this feeling that we get if we gather ourselves as we're the poor, then we hate the rich. And if we gather ourselves as the rich, then we like to try to ignore or have enough money that we don't have to look at the poor, right? That we don't have to be aware of their presence in our lives. They're in our world. And what Jesus does is he walks around saving the rich and saving the poor. If you, like, are, you, are here today and you consider yourself like a follower of Jesus already or friends with God or whatever, you're, and you wouldn't be surprised if Jesus wanted to hang out with you, Jesus wants to save you and love you and be your friend. And then others of you, maybe you're here or maybe a friend dragged you or you're just here because there's candy later, and you think... I've heard about your God, and I know some of your Christians, and I am positive that Jesus doesn't want to be my friend. The Christians, or the religious people, tend to be the people who are standing back and scoffing what Jesus is doing. Because Jesus is willing to be friends even with you. And in our better moments and less judgmental moments, we say like this, Jesus is willing to be friends even with me. Like, you could be the worst person in town. You could be the worst person in the valley. And you're probably not. There's probably people worse than you. But if you were, and Jesus came to town, he would totally look for you. He'd wonder why you're up in that tree. And he wouldn't mention anything about your height. <laughs> and he would come over to your house. And he would sit down and share a meal with you. And a meal, and, and he would, at that meal, because in our culture it's different, he would say, hey, for the rest of my life, I'm on your side. Anything you need, I want you to talk to me about it. I might not be able to do it, but I want to know about it. Anything that's going on for you or anything you're going through, I want to be there right beside you and kind of walk through that with you. Tell me this isn't the greatest story ever. The God of the universe comes to town he likes you, and he likes me, and he's all right with me and you being as screwed up as we are. 
He's all right with us even though we are. And he wants to be close to you. The amount of love that God shows to people who don't deserve it is ridiculous. The amount of patience, the amount of grace, the amount of commitment that Jesus puts forth to the people who don't deserve it, who haven't earned it, who aren't good enough, is nuts. Like of all the people on earth that are all the things that God could do, he decides that he's going to befriend this guy that doesn't deserve it. Put in a more personal way, he decides that he's going to befriend you. He knows your story. He knows where you've been. He knows the things that you've done that maybe they're not illegal, but they're pretty unethical. And he decides, me and you, we're the kind of people that can be tight forever. Me and you, let's, me and you be friends. And he doesn't, like Jesus doesn't say, Zacchaeus, if you will, give away all your stuff or give away half your stuff and pay back four times and, and be really demonstrably, like be a good Christian. Jesus doesn't say that. First, Jesus says, I'm with you. We're together. This is what I'm here for. This is what the last verse is. The Son of Man, which is Jesus' name for himself, came to seek and save the lost. So if you're here and you would define yourself, like me, during part of my life, as lost, like I am not a part of this thing that these Christians are doing, I want you to know that Jesus came to earth for you. Jesus, okay, and I'm going to say this, and this is going to be offensive to the Christians. Jesus did not say, I came to earth for the good religious people who are over there gossiping about me. Jesus only speaks harshly to one group, and it's that group that's over there grumbling and gossiping. Those are the only people Jesus is ever mean to. He's even, like, he's patient with people that he's not supposed to be patient with. So if you're here and you don't have any kind of relationship with Jesus, and you know some Christians, and that's the reason you don't have a relationship with Jesus, I want you to know that Jesus wants to be your friend and be close to you. And you don't even have to say, like, okay, I'm going to be a Christian, I'm going to pray the prayer or do the thing that I need to do or where do I sign this thing. No matter your response, God wants to be close to you and Jesus cares for you and wants your life to be what it could be and wants you to be free from that baggage that no longer defines you. Our response to that level of love, if we understand it, becomes a lot like Zacchaeus' response. When you meet God, all of a sudden your life changes. And we use words like repent, like you turn away from the sin that you were in and you walk in a different direction change your heart and change your mind and start living with and for Jesus. That's why Zacchaeus called him Lord, which is, means like master or king of my life, not just friend, because Jesus befriended him and then became the de facto boss of Zacchaeus' life. And if you're here and you would call yourself very saved, <laughs> I think this story is convicting. Because if we really admitted to ourselves 
the amount of love we pour into the world a lot of times goes to the people who are over here grumbling on the sidelines, agreeing with us and judging what God is doing in the world. Because we often have better ideas for Jesus' PR campaign than Jesus does himself. I often, being a pastor, know how to run the church in a better way than what Jesus would do. One of my favorite authors, Francis Chan, uh, he said, if Jesus had a church in my town, mine would be bigger. Isn't that a terrible thing? Like if Jesus came here and planted a church, if I looked at how Jesus ran his ministry, you wouldn't go. <laughs> I wouldn't go. I mean, there's good food and stuff, but what Jesus would do is demanded our lives, is demanded complete obedience and dependence on him. And most of us want partial. Like if you're a Christian and you're here, you're like, I want to follow Jesus, but I also want this over here. Like I want to follow Jesus, but when Jesus does that thing with the short guy I hate and then all that stuff for the poor people, I would really like to stay over here with my friends and talk bad about it so that I feel better about it. And if we can like dim Jesus's message by more and more of our message, then maybe I can feel good about it and not have to, you know, actually follow Jesus and I can just be a Christian. Which is as delusional as it gets. When Jesus comes to town, it's fantastic news for people who know who they actually are. And sometimes it's terrible news for people who've mastered the art of hiding who they are. Here's what's great. Even if you're in the crowd, Jesus still loves you and wants to be with you and wants your life to be what it could be. So no matter where you're at this morning, like your sin might be obvious. Your sin might be very well hidden. Your sin might be in your eyes very, very small. Your sin might be very, very large. And in all of it, Jesus has the same response. Let's get together. And let's, how about you stop telling me how to be God, and I'll just do that. And I'll show us how to live a life together and move forward and actually have this adventure in John 10.10 10, that Jesus says is the best life possible for a human being. How's that for great news? From a short, rich guy that we all hate, Jesus has decided to use him to show that he loves us. Let me pray for us, all right? God, we come from a lot of different places today, a lot of different perspectives or a lot of different stories or histories. And in all of it, uh, we want to turn to you in a way that allows us to experience your friendship, your grace. And God, free us from that draw to that religious grumbling crowd that says, why is God doing that? Like, how is God loving that person? They suck. And allow us to move closer to you and closer to the actual action that you're doing so that we can be a part of that. Jesus, if, 
If we claim to be a Christian, then I pray that you would allow us to draw near to the people, maybe at work or at school or in our family, that, uh, that secretly we wish wouldn't become a Christian. And I pray you would change our hearts in such a way that we'd be able to be Jesus in their life and go up to them and say, hey, I'm coming over. We're going to be friends. And no matter what your response is, anything you need for the rest of your life, we're together. And allow us not just to be experiencers of, or recipients of your grace, but experiencers in, as distributors of your grace. Allow us this week, as we're talking about love actually doing stuff, God, I pray you'd give us the opportunity to love in such a way that it's ridiculous, that it doesn't make any sense, and that it's not a good marketing campaign, but it is showing the ridiculous nature of God's love as so expansive and so great that it overwhelms us no matter where we are. By your name we pray. Amen.